Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Walhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today it's Full House. I'm joined by Susan Pentegrass, Elias Chapellis, David Stokes, and Patrick Ishmael from Show Me Institute. Patrick, on Wednesday, a Cole County Circuit judge ruled that the August 2020 referendum seeking to expand Missouri's Medicaid program was unconstitutional. Can you go a little bit more in depth on the ruling and what's it mean for the future of uh, the expansion of the program? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is an issue that we've been engaged in for a long, long time. Um, we talk about Medicaid expansion and Elias in particular has talked about this uh, amendment in the in the problems that are kind of bound up in it. And it finally came to a head this week. Uh, there was a ruling against uh, uh, the constitutional amendment that was passed last August. But even before it was passed, there was concern about it being unconstitutional. And what, what uh, the arguments were about was whether the amendment was attempting to compel an appropriation from the legislature. Um, in uh, Last year, uh, Jeremy Cady and Ryan Johnson, two prominent politicos, filed a lawsuit trying to take this amendment even off the ballot because it was presumed by, by their litigation to be unconstitutional, which I, I would agree with. And what the court did at that point is they said, well, it's kind of early in the process. The courts have a bias against taking amendments off of uh, off of ballots and uh, uh, you can have substantive litigation after the fact if it passes into law about whether it's unconstitutional or otherwise illegal uh, at some later date. And that's basically what's happened now. The, the legislature said in this last legislative session, we are not going to appropriate this money. Uh, supporters of the expansion filed a lawsuit to try to compel them uh, to uh, appropriate that money. And the court uh, this week said you can't compel the legislature to do that. Their decision not to fund Medicaid expansion was lawful. And not only that, the underlying amendment that was passed was uh, uh, unconstitutional. Now, what that means going forward, we'll see. There are almost certainly going to be appeals. I don't know if it's been filed yet, but it'll probably be, I would assume, filed sometime this week if there is going to be one. Um, this will probably go to the Supreme Court. Um, and it, it is a, a really interesting uh, piece of litigation because it really does, I think, put into sharp focus um, how this uh, amendment it came to become law uh, and whether it should have been law to begin with, whether it should have remained on the ballot at all. Um, uh, we'll see what happens in the next few months. But for now, uh, Medicaid expansion, uh, at least this particular ballot item and, and this portion of now the Constitution has been ruled unconstitutional. Uh, that may change uh, if uh, the, uh, the appellants have their way. Several other states have expanded Medicaid. Does this seem like a unique situation? Is this something that's unique to just the Missouri Constitution, or is this a, a battle that's been fought in, in other states? Uh, you know, there have been similar fights. I mean, at, at about the time that Missouri passed uh, its Medicaid expansion, and it didn't pass by that much. I mean, keep in mind, this was passed in August during a pandemic, uh, and there really weren't a whole lot of active primaries. It passed 5347 in Missouri. And about that time, there was also a similar ballot item in Oklahoma that, that also passed very you know, marginally. And, and I think that they've had discussions there about, you know, how do you fund this kind of thing? I mean, that was one of the, the main issues with the Missouri amendment is that if you're going to have something that appropriates money, you, you basically have to provide your own revenue. You have to institute some sort of a tax or fee that would pay for it. And, and that was lacking in Missouri's um, amendment. So other states, if, if there was an actual uh, a revenue mechanism uh, embedded in the amendment, if it was a public vote, um, I, I would presume that those probably were, were not nearly as, I guess, controversial. But in Missouri, you know, they, they argued for so long that this um, 
was not going to cost state taxpayers money, that it would actually save the state money. Um, you know, we, we've talked generally about how that was really never true. And Elias has talked in, with particularity about why this proposal wasn't true, why it wasn't true with this proposal. So, I, you know, different states have different landscapes, uh, but I think that uh, generally speaking, uh, there have been these debates about how do you fund these Medicaid expansions, but I don't know that uh, there has been a time where uh, an expansion was put on the ballot uh, was expanded into the Constitution, not just like uh, as a law, but a constitutional amendment, uh, and then face headwinds after it had uh, entered into the Constitution. That may be a first. I could be wrong, but um, this is a reasonably unique situation and reasonably unique circumstance. While we may not know how this is going to go forward, it does provide a cautionary tale to folks who think the way to get around Missouri's legislature is to do constitutional amendments that go to statewide vote. And while it's so tempting to say, not a problem, this, this what we're proposing is going to save money, so we don't need to come up with extra revenue, then you find yourself in this situation where if you didn't plan for the fact that it might re- require extra revenue and you didn't provide for how that was going to happen, then the whole thing goes away. So I just think it was uh, uh, bad thinking on the part of the folks who wanted this program. It's really important for the amendment process going forward that you can't just say, well, here's this thing that's going to cost all this money. We can just pass it along as if it's not going to and then tie the hands of the legislature going forward because that, you know, that goes into Missouri's uh, Hancock Amendment issues where voters have to say if they want, you know, higher taxes or what's going on there. So the constitutional amendment process itself is something I think is going to be in focus in Missouri for years to come. Can I ask a question? What does this do to the special session that the governor just called? So he just called the special session to bring lawmakers back to make sure that they pass a provider tax in order to pay for Medicaid expansion. So now what happens if the program has been deemed to be unconstitutional? Well, well I don't, I don't oh, sorry. That it, yeah, I don't know that it necessarily impacts the special session itself because the special session was going to have to be called even without uh, Medicaid expansion being a part of the conversation because it, it, it does address the existing program. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to Elias because he's the expert in this area. What, what exactly are they working on in the special session? What, what do they have to accomplish to make sure that, you know, that there don't have to be cuts to any other programs, not just in, in Medicaid, but uh, in other areas as well? Well, the special session is really dealing with two Uh, separate issues. So one is reauthorizing the state's Medicaid provider taxes, which essentially are a mechanism that the state uses to get additional federal dollars to pay for the Medicaid program. And those are set to expire at the end of the fiscal year. And so if Missouri doesn't have those, uh, next year's budget heavily planned on relying on them. And so there will be billions of dollars uh, that the state will have to come up with. The governor said last week before calling the special session that if they weren't reauthorized, he would have to cut $700 million immediately. Uh, but the other part of the special session is just that the there's some additional language being added related to um, some women's health services that are kind of combined into the same bill, which has made it such a political uh, hot button issue that was the reason that it didn't get re- the provider taxes didn't get reauthorized in the legislative session. As it's been typically done, uh, these provider taxes are reauthorized every year. I think they've been reauthorized 16 consecutive years without problem. So this year's a, a unique case, but it's not necessarily tied to Medicaid expansion. Do you think they'll get reauthorized? 
Oh, for sure. They they basically have to be because um, Missouri's Medicaid program is so expensive today in part because of how these provider taxes work. And by bringing in these additional federal dollars, what they're doing is they're allowing Missouri to uh, pay higher rates to providers and provide additional services that the state's tax base can't support um, on their own. So Missouri's state sales taxes, income taxes cannot really fill the hole that these provider taxes are filling. And so that's why the governor says if these aren't reauthorized, you're going to have to you know, make major cuts to higher education, all these other priorities. And so while I generally think, and a lot of my research has went into this, that these provider taxes are generally bad because they're propping up this program in an unsustainable way, uh, because next year's budget is so reliant on them and there's so much money on the line, uh, going, going about reducing the cost of Missouri's Medicaid program can't be done or shouldn't be done uh, by failing to reauthorize these uh, today. And the governor mentioned the deadline of July 1st. Is that an official deadline, the start of the fiscal year, or um, can they work beyond that? Uh, there, there's a little bit of time, a little bit of wiggle room there because uh, – so the statute does say they expire at the end of the fiscal year, but um, just with normal medical bills, you can uh, someone can receive a service towards the end of the fiscal year, and it takes a while for the billing to get worked out. So there there will be a few months of leeway there, but it it's it's something you'd rather get done sooner as opposed to later. Susan, wasn't there some uh, Jefferson City gossip that the governor might have uh, leveraged the ESA bill HB three forty nine to uh, encourage lawmakers to uh, return to Jefferson City for this special session? Well, I got the feeling that the governor was throwing out some programs that were very near and dear to some of the lawmakers to convince them um, around adoption services, also around school choice, because the deal on the school choice bill, which is unsigned as of this moment, um, the deal on the school choice bill is that the program does not become effective effective unless or until the legislature funds 40% of total school transportation costs. And they, to the extent, if they did hit it, and I think they did, there was some question as to whether they hit 40% or not. But if they did, they just hit it. And so the governor mentioned pulling back some school transportation funds, which would not only affect school transportation, but would then make it impossible to start the ESA program. So I think it sounded like a threat empty threat i don't know what do you think Elias? it just sounded like <clears throat> he picked some painful things to convince them to come back well there there was certainly some of that going on because the list uh went before the governor called the special session he put out a list of some cuts that he was going to have to make and he said there would be over 700 million dollars of cuts you'd have to make immediately if the provider taxes weren't reauthorized and then he listed maybe 100 million worth of things that he would cut and they were very specific um, you know, it was a autism center at Truman State University and, you yeah. know, just very specific kind of what appeared to be like pet projects or things that were important to different, uh, you know, different policymakers that he was trying to, you know, get that point across with. Uh, it's like in in education policy, there is often a discussion, and I bet you many listeners have heard of this, where the school board's going over budget and then their budget and then they have to cut it. And they're like, OK, well, the first thing we're going to cut is sports and music. They pick two things that is near and dear to many parents and then kids come to the school board meeting in their uniforms and then they're crying and then they're like, oh yeah, we'll bring back sports. So it, it seemed like a similar kind of tactic, like we're gonna cut these precious things if you don't come back. Well, speaking of schools and money, yeah, 
Superintendent of SLPS, Kelvin Adams, told a committee this week that in his 12-year tenure that St. Louis Public Schools have missed out on $126 million in property tax revenue as a result of tax increment financing and abatements that have been approved by the Board of Aldermen. So, David, do you know anyone that has raised this concern before? Well, yes. In in Kansas City, we've seen it quite frequently. The, the, the superintendent of the Kansas City Public School District has been raising alarms and questions about the use of tax subsidies in Kansas City for several years now. And I think that superintendent sort of took the lead from Crosby Kemper, the great Crosby Kemper, with, with the Kansas City Public Library System, who for over a, well over a decade was, was raising the alarm of, of the use of tax subsidies and how it was harming other taxing districts in Kansas City. So it's been, in fact, common in the Kansas City area for the other taxing districts to be objecting more strongly to the tax subsidies being given out by the city of Kansas City especially, but some of the counties there as, as well. And it's great to see in the city of St. Louis that this might start happening because until now, there haven't been the other taxing districts really raising much in the way of objection from in a wholesale way. And I would love to see the St. Louis City School District really start frequently objecting and sending people to TIF board meetings and, and land LCRA meetings, that's the Land Clearance and Redevelopment Authority, and objecting to these subsidies. And then I'd love to see the St. Louis Public Library and the Zoo Museum District and the Community College District and all these ta taxing entities following that following those footsteps to start objecting to it. So it's a great thing. We've we've seen in St. Louis County a few school districts occasionally object to some use of, of subsidies uh, by the various municipalities within the county. St. Louis County itself has done a pretty good job, not perfect, but pretty good. But we've not seen this sort of large-scale opposition from other taxing districts, and I'd love it if the city of St. Louis School District were to continue it. And can you just, for listeners who may not know, can you just connect the dots real quick? What's the connection between tax increment financing and school funding? Happy to. I'll try and do it very concisely for everyone here, Zach. So with TIF especially, which is perhaps the largest and most common, but by no means the only one, with TIF what happens is that you freeze the development, you freeze the taxes at where it is before the development begins. So if a, a taxing entity, if a, if a parcel is paying $100 in property taxes before the development and 200 in property taxes after it, they continue, that $100 incremental increase is taken, which would normally go to the taxing entities, now instead goes back to the developer to offset certain costs, allowable costs for their project. So they get to sort of keep the $100 increase in property taxes. The, the issue is, though, that under the law, the, the increment, you keep all of the increase in property taxes and you keep half of the increase in sales taxes. So there are many taxing districts, school districts, fire districts, library districts that depend almost entirely on property taxes. So they lose everything. Whereas cities, and to some extent counties, they depend more on a combination of property taxes and sales taxes. So a city looks at passing a TIF and says, well, we might lose out on all of our property taxes, but that's not very much for us. We will still gain half the new sales taxes. And if you took an empty field producing zero sales taxes and you put a Walmart there, half of the new sales taxes can be a lot of money. 
but you the new school district, the new the school district, the fire district, they get zero because you, they don't get any of the property tax increase, and that's just one of the misaligned incentives, which shows how cities are so enthusiastic for TIF and similar reasons for many other subsidies, uh, and how they harm other taxing districts. So, so that's just how it works, and and it's great to see again the school districts really starting to object more, and I hope it happens around the state. I hope it happens in Boone. I hope it happens in Boonville. I think it might have happened to some extent in Boonville over the big Boonville TIF proposed a few months back. And we just need it to be a frequent thing. I completely agree with you. I don't disagree with anything you just said. However, my beef with the article that you're citing is that the superintendent said that if only they had had $126 million, the four schools that are closing this year, including Sumner High School, would stay open. They would have had, a, I think, a tech center. They would have had all of these wonderful things if they had only had $10 million a year, right? So $126 million over 12 years. That would have made St. Louis apparently a district that's not losing enrollment. It's gone from over 100,000 students to around fifteen to 18,000. That wouldn't have happened without TIFFs. I mean, there was a lot that they balanced on the back of TIFFs, you know, that uh, would not have happened if only for the TIFFs. So I, I absolutely disagree with that. While I agree that TIFFs are not free, they come from somewhere, and they often come from schools. That is true, and I think everyone should be worried about that and be watching uh, the politicians who are giving away tax dollars, for sure. On the other hand, this claim that it is the reason that St. Louis Public Schools is closing schools is is incorrect. David, critics of critics of TIF, um, similar to the open field argument, will say, well, yeah, but these TIFs, they, they brought in more development than otherwise would have been there, not just in the area they got the TIF, but around it. So property taxes around the area went up and they brought in new business. And so sure, there's this $126 million you can point to, but the benefit is well beyond that in, uh, in new developments. Well, that's what they say, and that's what they claim. And there's a certain simplistic logic to it. They say, you're not losing any tax money. You're just not getting the money that you would have gotten anyway. So what, what's the harm? What's, what's the loss? And again, I think when, it was, when TIF was first brought to Missouri 30 or so years ago and then ex- expanded to include sales taxes a few years later, that's what a, a, certainly a number of politicians believed. And, and I've heard the St. Charles County Executive, Steve Ailman, say many times that the, one of the biggest votes he ever regrets was when he voted to allow to help bring TIF to Missouri as a state senator and how just took just a few years for him to learn how wrong he was. And he spent decades since then trying to reform it and change it. And he's, he's a true statesman in Missouri local, local government. But so we do know the answer to this question. I mean, they can say that you're not losing much. It's only the increment, but we know that it doesn't work. I mean, it's been studied extensively around the country. Do local tax subsidies help grow an economy? And certainly to the extent, do they grow enough, do they lead to enough growth to justify the the tax exemptions and the tax subsidies and the tax incentives, whatever you want to call them? Excuse me. And the answer is clearly no. The answer is they they do not. There are a number of reasons for this. A, a, uh, 
I, I mean, I could talk about this for hours, but, <laughs> but local economic development officials can't predict the future. The idea that they have the ability to predict smart uses of incentives and subsidies is in, insane. They're trying to look 10, 20 years in the future, and they're just they're absolutely incapable of doing that. What's more, so many of their decisions are based, at least in part, on political favoritism, political cronyism, you know, we're going to support people. So they're not even making neutral bad decisions, which would perhaps guarantee them at least getting it right sometimes, if only by chance. They're, they're making decisions based on politics many, many times. So they're, they're starting off with making bad decisions. But what's, what's more, let's give the Ballpark Village example. You see the Ballpark Village, well, it's just the Cardinals have built Ballpark Village. They have this TIF and other subsidies. This isn't money the city has lost. It's, it's money that would have never happened. Except Ballpark Village came in several years ago, and it's a beautiful development, and it's a hev- but it's heavily subsidized, so it has an advantage over its competition. It promptly drove out of business many other downtown bars and restaurants that were serving the Cardinal Ball Game traffic. So Ballpark Village won't be paying its full fair share of taxes for many, many years from now, but it drove out of business <laughs> businesses in downtown St. Louis and just south of downtown that were paying their full fair share of taxes. So the city's off there right then. And the finally, and I'm sorry, Susan, but the final answer is that the evidence is also clear that the vast majority of these development proposals and the like would come anyway. When they say it would never be here without the subsidy, well, that's just a canard. And I say canard because I don't like to say the word lie. But it's just a canard that people use and it's just not true. And this has been studied by independent economists around the country for decades. And these t- types of subsidy programs just don't work. I was just going to say the thing that makes people the saddest is the sports teams ones because they want them. They simply want to have a sports team. And it makes them sad to know that it will not be a positive economic benefit if you give them tax credits to come. And when we do. And another, right. We pay very wealthy owners of sports teams to come here with no net economic benefit. And that is this question has been studied and studied and studied. And the the answers are undeniable. And the Rams, <laughs> the Rams are honestly speaking the single greatest example of of that. We loved having a great Rams team here from 2000 to 2005, and we loved the Rams after that as well. But we gave such an unbelievably generous package of subsidies to the Rams, and so, soon after those subsidies expired, Bye-bye. and the owner passes, <laughs> and the new owner takes takes over. Uh, they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. And one more quick thing before we move on. The conversation around this has so many stakeholders. I mean, we just talked about there's a school choice element. There's a civic pride element that people can talk about. Susan, do you think stories like this are leading us further away or closer to actually having an honest conversation about what happens when a city decides to forego um, tax revenues and the actual impact in the in the community on those? It's such a hard thing for people to get their head around that I hope that we're leading, it's leading us towards a more honest conversation, but I don't think most people, with all due respect to all the work of the Show Me Institute, understand how tax incentive financing works, right? And I don't think they understand why Ballpark Village isn't a great thing. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I go there and I love it. I don't understand why it wouldn't be such a great thing. So I I think the more that we talk about it, for sure, but... um, uh, in terms of the impact on the school systems, I think that it is just misplaced because the way that we could make St. Louis a very attractive place for families and for children and how we could, I think, improve our educational system overall is to give parents 
every parent a number of options as to where their children go to school. And less than until we do that, I don't think St. Louis will be attractive educationally for families. And all the TIFs could end tomorrow, and I don't think it would make a difference in how attractive we are for keeping families. Not to mention, and that's a basic um, service to me, obviously, education, basic and important. We have another basic service of like making St. Louis attractive to people who want to live within the city limits, and we have a lot of work to do there. So uh, I hope we're having more honest conversations about the need to keep the tax money that we are supposed to be collecting, but um, it's just a start, I would say. Well, it, it has numerous effects, and one of them is it makes St. Louis, all these TIFs and other subsidies make St. Louis and Kansas City more dependent on the earnings tax, mm-hmm. which is a far more economically harmful local income tax than property taxes are. So you're saying, and I said this over and over it's in the buildup to the recent April retention votes on the earnings tax, is that it's so frustrating to hear we have to keep the earnings tax, we can't fund all these services without it, from the same politicians giving away sales and property tax exemptions like candy to almost anyone who asked for it. And the numbers are pretty amazing. Like if you if you phased out the earnings tax and at the same time just stopped giving away incentives and let the current incentives come back on board, that could take you, I'm not saying it could take you all the way to the earnings tax, but that gets you well into about a third of the way there to, to replacing the earnings tax money to then just with getting rid of incentives and subsidies. And then you can have the tougher decisions about replacing earnings tax funds and budget cuts on top of that. But that's the low-hanging fruit, which they're just unwilling to do. And I, I just wanted to add, I think that like we could be getting closer to a more uh, honest discussion just because you know they're saying that these developments are you know, increasing the economic activity in your region and all this stuff. But in St. Louis right now, you're seeing that some schools should be closing. And nothing's going to get parents more involved than saying their community school is going to close. And, you know, if the elected officials are saying, well, you know, we're building a new grocery store, we're building Ballpark Village, and that's going to save the community, but also we're closing your school, that's going to get people to start talking about like, well, what's going on with all this money if we still have to close our school, but our area is supposed to be doing better. And so maybe that can lead us to, uh, or lead St. Louis to having some more open discussions about what we're doing with our tax revenues. Patrick, what are you looking for in the next week? Um, as same as basically last week, we're still taking in data for the critical race theory uh, curriculum project. We've got some really interesting stuff that's come in. I believe we have a blog post up with some of our initial findings um, some of the records that we've received. So um, that is uh, certainly uh, top of mind. Uh, and of course, we have the special session that's ongoing. Uh, I know Elias is going to be paying close attention to it, uh, as well as I will. Uh, and uh, hopefully they will be able to get it done. Uh, Medicaid needs to be reformed. Um, they're not going to do it this at this time, but it'd be nice if uh, instead of trying to um, stop the bleeding, we actually tried to uh, make the, the program a lot stronger uh, with some reform. Susan? So the American Rescue Plan dollars are starting to flow out of just that um, stimulus package, which in education, there's been three, they're ESSER. So ESSER 1, ESSER 2, this is ESSER 3, uh, is $2 billion coming to Missouri on top of ESSERs 1 and 2. So we're just going to be watching closely to see how the funds get distributed, what school districts do. They have to have a plan. And if school districts, for some reason, it's more money than they need, um, will they take it? Will they ask for it? Will they give it back? Uh, just just seeing how that money gets distributed. And then um, 
hoping that the, I don't know, hoping that Desi and the state legislator put together, you know, a menu of programs that uh, would be student and parent centered. Uh, I'm certainly have plenty of suggestions for that. So that's what I'll be talking about. Elias? As Patrick mentioned, just this week, we'll be keeping up with the special session, seeing what compromise the legislators come to on these provider taxes and whatever other languages there, hopefully not tying their hands um, against further Medicaid reforms in the next couple of years. And as with what normally happens with Medicaid, hopefully there's not uh, the compromise they come to doesn't uh, result in extra costs to the state of Missouri. And David. Thinking about property taxes uh, on the and sales tax increases on the August special election ballot in Missouri, we can talk about this more in July as we get closer to it. But there's a uh, several in, in important cities and towns around the state with some property and sales tax increases, uh, some of which I think are going totally in the wrong direction, like a new sales tax in Camden County, that's Lake of the Ozarks, and uh, some which I think are much more understandable, like a modest tax increase in in Clayton. But it's, what's going to be interesting is with all the attention getting with these cities getting and counties getting all this bailout, I know it's not technically called a bailout, bailout money, which they don't need because it turns out that their tax collections for 2020 and early 2021 are far better than feared at the depths of the pandemic last year. So they don't really need this money. Uh, but they're going to be sent a ton of it. And our voter is going to be asking the question, well, you just got $2 million for my the city or a million dollars for the county. Why do you need this tax increase now? Because as much as you cannot use these monies to pay for tax cuts, it's certainly an interesting way to say, do you really need them to supplement tax increases, especially in Camden County, which is a sales tax increase for more sheriff's deputies, when the president just came out and said that American Rescue Plan funds can be used to hire more police officers, and Camden County is going to get an enormous amount of money. So it'll be interesting to see how the voters react to that. And a new paper up this week from Jacob Puckett on uh, tolling. So go get all of your tolling questions answered at showmeinstitute.org. Susan, Elias, David, and Patrick, thank you very much. 